medical myths even doctors believe. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable in a special series exploring health education. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Aaron Carroll, who is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Children's Health Services Research Program at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. Dr. Carroll is also the director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, where his current research interests include information technology in pediatric health care and decision analysis. Today, we're going to be talking about medical myths even doctors believe. Dr. Carroll, welcome uh, to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, maybe before we get into these myths, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own medical background and how you got into the IT and decision analysis business. Sure. You know, I think I'd always wanted to be a doctor. My father, who's retired now, was a surgeon. And it was one of those where I think it was just, I want to say, almost, almost always expected in my family. But I went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. And even when I was in medical school, I actually did some research in the use of computer programs to help educate medical students. And I've always been very interested in technology. And then when I went to residency in Seattle, where I was trained to be a pediatrician, I still became, was still very interested in technology. I was a very early adopter of sort of Palm Pilots and handheld technology, and I've written a number of programs that we did back then to help doctors actually take care of patients. But I always was very interested in how technology could be used to make care more efficient and make doctors better. And I wound up doing a health services research fellowship with the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program in Seattle, where I basically spent two years getting very intensive research training in how to do very high-level health services research. We're more interested in how can we actually refine the way that healthcare is financed, how can we change the way that healthcare is organized at a systems level, and, and really do some more high-level way to help doctors and patients get better health care, as opposed to sort of patient-level sure. new drugs, new things like that. Sounds like you've found the right place to be at the center. You know, and it turns out I, I'm very happy. I love what I do. The, uh, Indiana has the Regan Street Institute here, which is the forefront of informatics and sort of information technology, and, and our Children's Health Services Research Group does a fair amount of work in that area as well. But even broader than technology, it's really about knowledge and how we actually take what we know, and technology is one way to do this, but to take knowledge and put it in the hands of doctors in the right way, put it in the hands of patients in the right way, and try to take knowledge and information and use it in the, in the best way possible. Yeah. That sounds like a neat job to go to every day. It's interesting because along those lines, I guess a couple months ago in the British Medical Journal, you talked about how some false knowledge is getting into the hands of docs and patients. So let's, let's talk about some of those issues because I think many of our listeners will share some of these issues. One of the things you brought up in the article was the... Uh, <laughs> It's something we all run into almost every day. The myth is that cell phones are dangerous in hospitals. That's, that's not true? I don't think it's true. This all came about because there were some theoretical beliefs, and, you know, people are worried that, you know, cell phones do this, cell phones do all this electromagnetic radiation, what's it going to do? And there were some concerns that all the electromagnetic stuff going in and out of cell phones could interfere with some of the very sensitive and very important equipment in hospitals. And it's a valid concern. But even when they actually did the studies, and the studies were done, remember, with old cell phones that were very different, they found that you had to get incredibly close before there was any kind of interference. And what's very interesting is that even if they could get interference, 
it never really did anything that could have caused people to have problems. There's never been a documented death or serious injury due to use of cell phones. And even the most recent studies using new cell phones, which maybe you're putting a lot more information in or out, find that you have to get down to the level about three centimeters away before you see any kind of significant interference. Nobody talks with a cell phone three centimeters away from something in an operating room or from you know a respirator. So regular use, where you're in a hallway or a cafeteria, or you know, you've just given birth and you want to call everybody and there's really no technology in the room that's running at that time, there's no danger there. So even the most conservative manuscripts or articles out there say eh, about a, mo- a one-meter rule is a good idea, about a yard. You know, as long as you stay a mo- more than a meter away from high-tech equipment, you're going to be fine. So probably don't use it in an ICU, an intensive care unit, or where somebody's on a respirator. But in the vast majority of places in hospitals, it's very unlikely that cell phones will do any damage. Well, that's good to know. And I would assume that there are advantages that have to be balanced with all disadvantages in, in all these kinds of situations. In this case, doctors using mobile phones, one would assume they have better communication, make fewer mistakes. And there's even some evidence to, to show that that's true. There have been some more recent studies that show doctors who have access to cell phones are less likely to make medical errors when they're prescribing drugs. Uh, in certain situations. So there's, you're right, there's a definite benefit to be gained. So what we were trying to say is, let's not, you know, just go with the hype. There's a definite benefit to using cell phones, and it seems that the harm is minimal. So to say that they're dangerous is really overreaching. Got it. Well, if you are new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable and a special series exploring health education on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Carroll, and we're talking about medical myths that even doctors believe. Here's another one, Aaron, that I uh, understand even you believed before you did the research. That is that eating turkey makes you drowsy. Is that true? Eating turkey is no more likely to make you drowsy than eating many, many other foods. This is a very pervasive myth. I freely admit that I thought this one was true. Uh, I've been told it by many people, and you see it every year on the news when it's time to have Thanksgiving, and it certainly makes sense. And it's all been attributed to tryptophan, which is a substance found in food that has been shown to actually make people sleepy and change their moods. And there's good science to show that tryptophan does this. But when you actually look at real studies, there's no more tryptophan in Turkey than in chicken or ground beef. And in fact, there's much less tryptophan than in Swiss cheese or pork. So it turns out that, yes, tryptophan can make you sleepy, but turkey's not high in tryptophan. Why, we get, why do we get sleepy after big Thanksgiving meals? Well, it's because we just ate a big meal, and it's very likely that a lot of people have also consumed a fair amount of alcohol. Okay, well, here's another myth. Let's talk about this one. And my mother always told me this, so I doubt that this is a myth. But the myth is that reading in dim light ruins your eyesight. Is that true? No. And everyone's mom told them this, I think, including my own. There have been no good studies which have shown that reading in light causes permanent damage. And while reading in dim light can cause some eye strain because your eyes have to work harder to, uh, to focus in dark light, or dim light, excuse me, as soon as you go back into normal light, your eyes rapidly go back to normal. And there's also just, you know, there's reasonable epidemiologic evidence which shows this isn't true. We live to some extent in the best lit that society has ever been in the history of the world. And most people seem to believe that our eyesight is actually getting worse over time. And so it's hard to argue that as lighting conditions improve, that it's the light that's actually causing vision to be permanently worse. Got it. 
Okay, here's another one kind of well-believed, I suspect, in our community. That is that uh, you should drink at least eight glasses of water a day. Is that true? This one has been one of the hardest to, to beat back. This, if you really look through the history of this, it, it probably started back in the 40s with a recommendation from the Nutrition Council that came up with a number that was 64 ounces or about eight glasses of fluid a day. But what was also included in that recommendation, and it really wasn't based on science, it was a recommendation that everybody ignores, is that they said you're likely to get most of this through the foods you eat and the other things you drink during the day. Fruit counts. Other food that you eat that contains water counts. Juice counts. Tea, even coffee would count. This is all part of hydration, and they all contain water. So even if you believe, and there was no science to say so, that you need that much liquid a day, you're likely getting it in your normal diet. Most people are going to get as much water as they need just by a normal diet. If you feel thirsty, by all means, drink some extra liquid. But there's no need to believe that you need to force yourself to drink eight glasses of pure water every day. Got it. Okay. Well, that'll make life a little easier for some of us. Here's another one that I think it was attributed at one point to Albert Einstein. So you're up against some competition here. The myth is that we use only 10% of our brains. Not only is that a myth, the Einstein part is a myth as well. He never said that. And all the good biographies have shown that he never, that that's never been shown that he actually said that. So that in itself is a myth. This one originates even further back than the water myth. It probably started around the early 1900s with snake oil salesmen who were trying to sell tonics to improve people's brain power and came up with this idea that we're only using 10% of our brain. Reasonable modern studies that scan the brain show that all areas of the brain are active and that neurons are firing almost continuously at all time. Certainly, you would never want to lose any part of your brain. And most people, if they do have brain damage and lose a part of the brain, have some effect. It's true that we don't use every part of the brain as much as every other part of the brain. We're not using all of the parts at all times. But certainly, everybody's using all of their brain all the time, not 10%. There's no magic 90% that's sitting around unused. Here's another one. There is a myth that shaved hair grows back not only faster, but coarser and darker. Is that true? No. And this one has been another one that we've received a lot of pushback on. It's just not true. Certainly, and I have a friend who's balding and always wants me to point out, if this was true, then bald men could just shave their heads and all their hair would grow back thicker, stronger, and darker. That just doesn't occur. When you shave hair... What happens is that when it first grows back, it's blunt. It's not hasn't yet had time to be sort of smoothed out by by being in contact with other things, and so it feels coarser. It looks darker because it hasn't been exposed to light or the sun yet, and therefore hasn't achieved its regular color. And it doesn't grow back any faster. And studies have shown that 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 just doesn't occur. Hair that's anything you do to hair above the level of the skin has no effect on what's going on below the skin. And so shaving hair may, for a day or two, appear to be darker or coarser, but will grow back at a normal rate, and when it's all said and done, will appear just as it did before you shaved it off. Well, related to that, here's another myth that hair and fingernails, for that matter, continue to grow after a person dies. Is that true? No, and it's a morbid myth, and it, it sort of has a lot of play in, in a lot of literature and in movies, and it's, a, it's an optical illusion. First of all, growing hair and nails is a complex hormonal process that requires a live body to occur. When people die, what happens is that their skin dries out, desiccates, and actually starts to retract. And it's this retraction that makes it look like nails are getting longer and hair is getting longer. But the hair and nails are not changing at all. It's the skin pulling back. And so no growth occurs after death. Let me ask you this, Aaron. These, these are kind of interesting, and, and some of them certainly widely held. When you and your team published this in the British Medical Journal, what kind of feedback did you get, or have you had much? We've had a lot of 
far more than we thought. Rachel and I have been blown away by this. It varies. We've had a lot of positive feedback, and we've had a lot of interest from people who just think it's an interesting topic and they want to talk about it. And I've had a lot of feedback from people who have, you know, 10 more myths that they want to know about and to see if they're true or not. But what we were surprised by was that there's some real pushback that was not so pleasant. Some people really hold on to these beliefs, and they really, truly believe them to be true. And even in the face of we try to show good science, they just don't want to let it go. Now, granted, some of them have ulterior motives. They either have, there's a lot of business in selling water. There's a lot of business in, in convincing women that they can't shave, that they have to do other things to, to remove unwanted hair. But we were also surprised by the number of physicians who either really fought back against us or took offense at the idea that, that we thought that they didn't know this already. And it was never our intent to say, wow, look how you know, the doctors don't know what they're talking about. We're doctors. Our intent was to show that human beings believe this, Doctors are human beings, and as such, it's important that we all look back at not only the new knowledge coming out, but the things that we hold already to be true and make sure that there's really good evidence to support that. My thanks to Dr. Aaron Carroll for being our guest. We've been talking about medical myths even doctors believe. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to a special series on health education on ReachMD, XM157. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.